Good morning. The reading today is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting at verse 1. If you have your Bibles, please follow along, but it will also be up on the screen behind me. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drive out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. And he will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees and laws I give you today. This is God's word. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark. If I haven't met you, it's really great to uh, be here with you. Um, very welcome to you. If uh, this is your first time at WBC or you're visiting with someone, it's great to have you with us. As uh, Jeff has said, uh, just looking at one thirty-fourth of the book today, not a huge amount to kind of take in, uh, but we're going to need God's help. So let me pray for us and then we'll have a think about Deuteronomy 7 together. Uh, Almighty God, we thank you that you're a God who speaks. Thank you that you have spoken clearly through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we have your word written down and preserved for us in the Bible. And thank you that as we read it now, that you are speaking. And so, Lord, please give us ears to hear. Uh, give us soft hearts to believe and to receive what you say to us this morning. And grant us faith to believe and obey. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when my wife Catherine and I were... Uh, imminently getting married, uh, we did a marriage preparation course, which I suspect many of you will have done. Right? It's pretty typical to kind of do one of those things where you, you sit down with a, a counsellor or a pastor or someone and you talk through a whole range of topics that you kind of need to chat about before you get married. And the idea with these preparation courses 
is that it's supposed to basically uh, get you on the same page, you know, set clear expectations before the day actually comes. And uh, they're, they're great, they're really helpful, I commend them to you, uh, because what they do is they force you to talk about things that you wouldn't otherwise talk about, you wouldn't naturally have a conversation about. They, they help you to think about different uh, topics that are important in a marriage. So, for instance, uh, they get you to think about your family of origin and what's normal in your family of origin and your partner's family of origin and what the differences between those two things are and how that's going to come together in marriage. When, when Catherine and I did that exercise, we discovered some pretty significant differences. My mum and dad are here today, so I'm not going to say what they are. Uh, but that was, that was a helpful exercise to do that. Uh, one of the, the topics, sometimes it's kind of quite concrete and nitty-gritty topics that they get you to talk about. Things like who's going to pay the bills in the house, who's going to manage the finances, keep the books, who's going to clean the toilet. You know, that's a topic of conversation. And I confess that as a 24-year-old... Uh, sitting there in this, this marriage preparation course, I had a bit of an epiphany because it had never really occurred to me before that, like, that's a thing that needs to be done. You know, to what toilets don't clean themselves. That was, anyway, that was a helpful topic of discussion for us to make a decision about before we got married. Uh, but then they also talked ab about, you know, relational intimacy in marriage, which, I'm not going to lie, that's an awkward kind of conversation to have with, you know, the other person in the room, this person that we we didn't really know who was leading us through. I mean, it's not like it would have been less awkward if we really knew that person intimately. Like, that may have been worse, in fact. But it was embarrassing to have that conversation, but it was helpful. It was good to get it out in the open, to talk about expectations with that sort of thing. As I said, the whole point of that preparation course is so that you go into marriage with your eyes open, with clear expectations set, so that your marriage works, so that your marriage lasts. Uh, when we started the book of Deuteronomy, I said to you that the relationship between God and his people is a lot like a marriage. It's described in the Bible in marriage terminology time and time again. And similarly to an earthly marriage, if we want our relationship with God to last, then we need to go into that relationship with our eyes open. We need to have clear expectations about what this relationship is going to be like. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 7 is a bit like a marriage preparation course for Israel. Uh, it's in this chapter that God tells them uh, what they, and by proxy, what we need to know, what we need to do uh, if this relationship is going to work, if we are going to go the distance with God, so to speak. Uh, so that's what we're going to see today. And I realize that for many of us, it's a bit strange to be thinking about doing a marriage preparation course because the majority of people here are Christians. You, you know, you've, you've already tied the knot with God, so to speak. That ship has sailed. And so this is, we're doing this a bit after the fact. You could think of this as maybe like one of those marriage enrichment seminars or something. But if you're somebody who is not yet a Christian, well, I hope that today will help you to see what it would be like to commit yourself to God. And as we look at chapter 7, uh, what I'm really going to zoom in on is verse 6. Just verse 6 of chapter 7, because I think that's kind of the key to this whole chapter. I think when we look at this chapter through the lens of verse 6, it kind of makes sense of everything else that we need to know. And what verse 6 shows us is two key things, actually. Two key things we, we must reckon with if our relationship with God is to work. The first thing we're going to see here and that Israel needed to know, is that they are secure in God's love. That's the first thing, that they are secure in God's love. And it kind of goes without saying, doesn't it, that in any marriage, uh, you've got to have an enduring love for one another for that relationship to last. 
Uh, you may know that just a couple of weeks ago, it was announced that the fourth richest people in the world, Bill and Melinda Gates, after 27 years of marriage, are getting a divorce. And uh, the report is, Bill has sort of let slip, that he, he thinks they've been in a loveless marriage for many, many years. And they're finally only now kind of coming to terms with that and dealing with it. Uh, because, you see, love is like this gravity that, that pulls people together and keeps people together. And so without it, well, it's kind of no wonder that two people like that would drift apart, right? In chapter 7, God wants to remind us and remind his people that his love for us is not going anywhere, that it's, it's not in jeopardy at all. So have a read with me of uh, verse 6. We're just going to look at the second half of verse 6 to begin with. Verse 6, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now that final phrase, treasured possession, it's, it's an interesting phrase. It only comes up about six times in the Bible. And it's referring to, it's, a, it's sort of a technical term that refers to like the treasure that a king has. It's the most prized possession in a king's uh, wealth, basically. All their gold, all their, that would be the, the treasured possession. It's that thing which they would boast about, that thing that is most important to them. And so this is quite something, that the Lord of the universe says that his people are his treasured possession. How does God think about you? Most of us assume that God tolerates us, right? We know that we're not perfect all the time. And so we assume, well, God, you know, he just overlooks that stuff and he lets it slip and he, he's a little bit disappointed, but, you know, he's like that sort of step... We're like that stepchild who he's got to love anyway. That's how, how most of us think that God looks at us. But that's not actually the case, is it? If you are one of God's people, he sees you as his most treasured possession, you are that which is precious to him, that which he boasts about. You are the apple of God's eye. In fact, that's a phrase that Moses is going to use later in the book of Deuteronomy to describe Israel, the apple of God's eye. This is a remarkable thing that God would look at anyone like that, isn't it? It's a remarkable thing, if you are one of God's people already, that he looks at you like that. Out of all the people on the earth, isn't it a miracle that he looks at you as his cherished possession. Because do realize what that verse is saying is that there are only some people for whom this is true. There's a subset of all people who are God's treasured possession. Now, God does love in a general sense. He loves all people, of course, in the world. They are his creations made in his image. He blesses all people in various ways, sends the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. But God has a special love a saving love, a choosing, electing love just for some. Now, why has God done that? Why has God chosen you? Why has he set his affection on you? Well, look what, look what verse 7 tells us. Verse 7 tells us that it's not because we were you know, better or more deserving than some other people. Look at verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you, Israel, and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples, right? If you are one of God's people, the point is there's nothing that you can boast about, nothing you can feel smug and superior about. 
It, it wasn't that you had something going for you that other people didn't have. It wasn't, right, that Israel were so much better than the Canaanites. Not at all. In fact, if you flick over to chapter 9, Moses labors this point. Chapter 9, verse 5. It was not because of your righteousness or integrity that you are going in to take possession of the land. Down to verse 6. Understand, it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord is giving you this good land to possess. If you are someone that God has set his love on and not someone who God is going to judge, as you look at those other people, you have to say, there but for the grace of God go I. Because there's nothing about me that I can afford to be smug about, nothing that justifies God's love for me. So why did God do this? Why did he set his affection on you? Look look what Moses explains in verse 8. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. If I'm saved and others are not, it's because of God's electing sovereign love. Now, in case you're struggling to kind of get your head around this, let's just let this sink in for a second. Take a a moment to understand Moses' argument here. Verse 7 The Lord set his affection on you, not because you were more numerous or better, more righteous or anything else. God chose you. God loved you. Why? Verse 8. What's the answer? Because he loved you. God loved you because he loves you. That's the rationale that Moses gives. And if you're thinking that's circular reasoning, yes, it is. That's the point. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And I actually think that that is the closest that the Bible ever comes to explaining why God chooses and saves and loves some people and not others. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. That's the answer. And there's a mystery in that. Like, I'm not pretending that I understand how that works. I can't possibly hope to unravel why God does that. But what I want to do with you is just to to dwell on this for a minute and to think about how good it is that that's God's explanation for his love. It is so good, friends, that God tells us this is why he loves us and not some other reason. Have a think about this. Imagine in a marriage, right? If Catherine were to ask me, you know, Mark, do you love me? What would be my answer? Of course. Of course I love you. Well, why? Why do you love me, Mark? Okay, well, lots of reasons. What am I going to say? Well, it's because your, your beauty takes my breath away. That would be a nice reason to say, wouldn't it? Well, what's her reply going to be? That's all well and good today, but what about 30 years from now? When I'm grey and wrinkled, are you going to love me then? I'd say, okay, well, okay, looks aren't everything, you know. Your charm, your, your warm personality that stirs my heart, that's why I love you. She might say, well, what happens if I get depression and that's not my personality anymore? I'd say, okay, well, you know, <laughs> we've built a life together. We, we've had 20 years of, of romantic history, romantic memories together. That, you know, that compels my love for you. She might say, well, what if I get dementia and I can't remember all those things anymore? Are you going to love me then? You see, at the end of the day, the only thing that will give her any security is if I say, well, I just love you. I love you because I love you. Not because of any of those reasons at the end of the day. I just love you because I love you. That's what God is saying to his people here. I love you because I love you. The reason isn't in you. It's in me. That's why I love you. 
And do you see what a difference that makes when you grasp that? Do you see how that grants us a security in life that no other love can give us? If God's love for us rested on anything else, rested on us in any way, it would be in constant jeopardy. I wonder, friends, do you know God's love for you like that? Are you secure in God's love for you? In his uh, 2004 book, uh, Status Anxiety, the philosopher Alain de Botton, uh, he wrote this. He wrote, Every adult life could be said to be defined by two great love stories. The first, the story of our quest for sexual love. The second, the story of our quest for love from the world. Now, Alain de Botton, he's a secular philosopher. I don't agree with everything that he says and writes, but I do think he's bang on with this. I think he's correct that all people are searching for a second love, a love from the world. And what he means by that is, is a, a validation, an approval, a sense of belonging and a meaning from the world. There's a quest that everybody is on in some way to find that love. Deuteronomy 7 tells us that we can find it. <laughs> that in fact, God has given it to us. Because in God's love, what we receive is a status as God's treasured possession. What we receive in God's love is a knowledge that he approves of us, no matter what. Uh, that we belong to him, that we belong amongst his people. And that we have a purpose in life. And best of all, we can know that this love will never be taken away from us. Because God loved us when we were at our worst, didn't he? What is it that Paul says in Romans chapter 5? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. When did God love you? When you were at your worst. His love for you, you see, it doesn't depend on you. And so there's nothing that you can do to lose it. And that is so liberating to know, isn't it? So freeing to know that you don't have to go on that quest for love from the world. To know that you don't have to use people to get love because God gives you his love. It's a free gift of grace. That is such freedom. Do you know God's love for you like that? Are you secure in God's love for you like that? Because if you're going to have an enduring and a lasting relationship with God, then that's the foundation that you have to stand on. Now, as I say that, just because God loves us unconditionally, because of nothing to do with us, that does not mean, let me clarify this, it does not mean that we are then free to go off and live our lives however we want with no reference to God. No, you know, thinking that God's just going to love us anyway, no matter what we do. That's not how it works. Because the other thing that Israel need to know and that we need to know is that when you are loved by God, that means then that you are set apart for God. That's the second thing that verse 6 teaches us. You are set apart for God. So have a look there, verse 6, first half of verse 6 this time. Moses writes, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now, that word holy there is a word that literally just means set apart or separate from. Uh, in the New Testament, the New Testament name for it is a saint. Anytime you see that word in the New Testament, to the saints in wherever, it's literally just a, a word that means holy ones. 
And so all Christians, all of God's people are saints. There's no sort of special class of saints that, you know, super holy people and then the rest of us plebs. If you're a Christian, you're a saint, you are a holy one, set apart for the Lord. And you notice here in Deuteronomy 7 that Israel are not being urged to become set apart, to become holy. Now, the, the point in, in verse 6 there is that they are holy. Holiness for them is a fact before it's an ambition. Because remember, God has already redeemed them, hasn't he? He has rescued and saved them and brought them out, as verse 8 says, from the land of slavery with a mighty hand. God is the one who has already set these people apart for himself. He's made them holy, and so now he wants them to know that they belong to him and to him alone. You could think of this, actually, as just another way of Moses sort of stating the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, now that God has redeemed them, God expects his people to be exclusively his, uh, to not love other gods, to not serve other idols. He's asking for monogamy in this relationship we have with him. And that's not too much to ask in a marriage, is it? Now, the reason I'm stressing this is because you've got to understand this truth, the holiness of God's people, that they are set apart for the Lord. And it's only when you understand that that you can make sense of those quite shocking commands in the first five verses of this chapter. Because what will it look like for Israel to be set apart wholly for God? Verse 2, when they enter the land that God is giving them, they are to destroy the inhabitants of the land totally, to make no treaty with them, to show them no mercy. They are not to intermarry with them. They are to break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut their, down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire. That's what it's going to mean for Israel to be set apart for the Lord. Now, what are we to make of that? Because that's quite extreme, isn't it? You know, destroying all of the, the religious artifacts for an entire culture, that's cultural vandalism, isn't it? I mean, couldn't Israel have just put them in a museum or something or melted them down and used them for other... You know, why did they have to go to this length? And, and, and would it really have been that bad if they, after they'd been living in the land for a few years, if their eldest son returned home and said, Mom and Dad, I've met a girl here, Jezebel, and I want to get married. Would that have been such a you know, tragedy? Is that really going to cause that big of a problem? I, I mean, I, I joke about this, but obviously the most shocking part of these commands are the instructions to destroy the, the Canaanites, to take no prisoners, show no mercy. I mean, that sounds very much like genocide or ethnic cleansing, doesn't it? And so perhaps as you read this passage, you, like a lot of people, feel that there's something of a moral dilemma here. Uh, how is it that, that a good God could command something like this, the wiping out of an entire people group? Maybe you're wrestling with that moral dilemma. There's lots that we could say in response to that. Uh, we could talk about the wickedness of the Canaanites and how, based on their wickedness, they had forfeited the right to live. We could talk about the demands of God's justice as a, as a righteous God needing to punish evil and not let it slide. Uh, we could talk about how God had been generously patient with 
these people and had not judged their sin for hundreds of years, and he, he was waiting for them to turn to him. We could talk about how the door for forgiveness was open to them, open for anyone who will turn back and seek God's mercy. We could talk about all those things and try and resolve this moral dilemma, but I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to step around that today. And if you want to ask me about that moral dilemma, I encourage you to text those questions into the podcast. I'm going to tackle that uh, later this week in the podcast there. And the reason I'm, I'm not just taking the easy way out here, the reason why I'm not dealing with this moral dilemma is because there's another dilemma in this text that's actually much more important. Uh, this text actually shows you that there is a missional dilemma going on here for Israel. That's the focus. Uh, now, what do I mean? Well, do you remember what Israel's mission was as a nation, as a people? God had called them, right, to do what? To, to be a city on a hill, to be a light to the Gentiles, a nation who showed the rest of the world how good it was to have the Lord as your God. So think back to God's promises to Abraham right near the beginning of the Bible, that God told, them, told Abraham he would make them into a great nation, and through this nation, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed, right? Well, now, Deuteronomy, God is bringing Israel into the land so that they can fulfill that mission of being a light to the nations, being the ones who bring blessing to the world. And it would have been so good for Israel if they fulfilled that mission. If we keep reading in our passage, verse 12 and onwards, you see a picture of what this life would have been like if they had succeeded in this mission. Let me read verse 12 of chapter 7. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine and olive oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. You will be blessed much more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor will any of your livestock be without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but will inflict them on all who hate you. You see, it would have been heaven on earth for Israel if they had done this, if they had kept their covenant vows and remained faithful and set apart for God in the land. And that is why the commands to destroy the Canaanites are so absolute. Because Israel's mission was hanging in the balance here. Keep reading verse 16. You must destroy all the peoples that the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity. Do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. You see, God knew that if they didn't destroy these people, then Israel would be ensnared to, to worship other gods. They would no longer be his holy people, set apart for him alone. The danger that God recognized was spiritual adultery. That's what he's trying to prevent. And do you know that if you are a Christian, then you face that exact same dilemma today, that missional dilemma. If I can put it this way, my heart was not empty when Jesus came and took up residence in my heart. My heart was occupied. There were all sorts of sins and idols which Jesus has to remove from my life. And one of the difficulties that when you become a Christian is you are tempted, like Israel were, to make treaties with those enemies within, to let them linger a little bit. 
not to wipe them out entirely. And when you do that, when you hold on to your old self, when we entertain other lovers, we are failing at being God's holy people. Do you know, Jesus, Jesus calls us to violent hostility towards those enemies within. He calls us, doesn't he, to put to death the sin that remains. He tells you to pluck out your eye, cut off your hand if it causes you to stumble. That's violent language, isn't it? We are to be ruthless and uncompromising in our pursuit of holiness, just like Israel were. If you don't kill sin, said John Owen, sin will kill you. And if we fail at that, then we're going to end up just like Israel did, eventually just blending into the culture around them. Israel lost their distinctive testimony as the people of God. And in the end, there was nothing to distinguish them from their neighbors. What did Jesus say? You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, what use is it? You saints, you, you people of God, if you lose your distinctiveness as the people of God, what are you fit for? You see how this applies to us, friends? Obviously, we are not in the same situation as Israel. Uh, we are not in a geographically bound kingdom with literal physical enemies that we are to go and destroy. But we do live in a world full of people who hate God, don't we? We do live in a world full of people who worship other gods and think very differently to us. And the question for us is, how are we going to keep our distinctiveness in the midst of all that? How are we going to live as saints, as set-apart ones for God? Because it, I hope you know this, that the gospel does call you to live a radically different life to the people around you. Do you know that? that? The gospel is meant to change you as a person so that your life looks nothing like the people who do not know Jesus. In all sorts of ways, the gospel is meant to change you. In how you raise your kids, in how you spend your money, in how you conduct your business, in what you watch on TV, in who your friends are, in how you think about your body, in what words you use or don't use, in how you handle suffering and tragedy, in how you think about ageing, in what kind of a neighbour you are, in what you do in your retirement, in all these ways and, and infinite numbers of others, the gospel is meant to change you into someone who is radically different to the world around you. The question is, how does your life compare to the world around you? If we did a blind taste test and we took a look at, at your life and the life of just a you know, random non-Christian off the street and we didn't know which one was which, would we be able to tell which one was the Christian life? Or have you made too many treaties with competing gods, competing idols, such that you are completely indistinguishable from God's enemies? Where is it that you're at risk of blending in rather than standing out? Because whether you live a holy life it matters. It matters because just like Israel, our mission is at stake. Do you remember what the Apostle Peter said in his first letter as he wrote to the Christians who were scattered around 
the Roman world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he quotes from Deuteronomy here. That's what he says. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see how that works? We are called to be different, to the praise of God's glory. Do you know, friends, if you want your family and friends to come to know and trust Jesus, then you need to live distinctively different as God's people. That is how God designed this to work. Remember what Peter says just after this, verse 11? He writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, as we live lives worthy of the gospel, that is attractive to the world around us. I wonder how many people in this room became Christians because one day they they knew someone who was a Christian and they recognized something in that person's life that they didn't have and that they wanted, something distinctive. I would bet that a large number of you have that testimony. I, I may have shared this with you before, but did you know that there are actually five Gospels? All right, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Christian as well. It's the fifth gospel. You know, the issue is that most people won't read those first four gospels, but they will read you. So what does your life communicate to people? Uh, there's been some research done recently in the U.S., Uh, that has demonstrated that uh, Christianity in the US is in decline, quite dramatically so. And uh, Christian leaders over there are starting to scratch their heads and ask why this is happening and trying to figure out the reasons why so many people are not interested in Christianity anymore. And uh, Russell Moore, who uh, works for the Southern Baptist Convention over there, has done some analysis on this. And this is his explanation. He writes this. We now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, that's us, by the way, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. The presenting issue in this secularization is not scientism or hedonism, but disillusionment and cynicism. Do you know that when people look at Christians and they look no different or often worse than the rest of the world, do you know it does not matter what message we preach to them at that point because it will be unbelievable to them. You know, they will look at us and say, you talk a lot about Jesus loving sinners, but you sure seem to be pretty angry people all the time. You talk about how heaven is your home, but then you're more materialistic than the rest of the world. What's going on there? You clearly don't believe what you say you believe. Friends, if we don't live conspicuously holy lives, our mission as God's people is dead in the water. And I say we, I'm using corporate language here, because that's how we are supposed to understand it. Did you pick up on what Peter said? That we are a kingdom of priests together, corporately, as God's people. You know, the priests in Israel, they were the mediators. They were the ones who people would come to in order to find God and connect with God. And Peter applies that to Christians. And he says, you're a kingdom of priests. And so if you want the world to know who God is, well, then you've got to do that together as a community. You've got to show them together as a community. You see, God's plan is not for us 
to be a bunch of disconnected, holy individuals, just you know, morally upright. That's not the holiness God is calling us to. God is calling us to be a holy people, together, a kind of counterculture, what John Stott called God's alternative society. Uh, that's the church, a society that is not built on self-promotion but on self-sacrifice, a society that's not built on power but on service, a society that's not built on the survival of the fittest but on caring for the weakest, the poor, and the marginalized. Do you know a gospel community like that makes the gospel message not only believable but compelling? Friends, I want to be a part of a community like that, don't you? I want to be part of a community where the members love God with reckless abandon. All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. If we do that, it will be heaven on earth for us. And we will be a city on a hill for this dark world. That's how it works. That was God's purpose for Israel in Canaan. And it's his purpose for us as his people too in this world. And if our relationship with God is going to last, well, these are the terms. These are the expectations. If you want to be God's chosen person, his treasured possession, his, uh, you want to be secure in, God, in God's love, then he wants you to give yourself, your whole self, to him and to nothing and no one else. We are people set apart for the Lord. And so just as he who called you is holy... So be holy. Let me pray for us. Holy God, we thank you that we who know Jesus Christ are your treasured possession. Thank you that you have set your love upon us when we were at our worst. Thank you that your love for us is secure and it is not in jeopardy. Lord, please, I ask for every person in this room would they know in a real experiential way the security that is found in your love? Help us to know too, Father, that we belong to you. You have purchased and redeemed us. Our lives are yours. Thank you for setting us apart for you. We long to be your holy people, that city on a hill in this dark world. And so, Lord, refine us. Purify us, make us holy just as you are holy. We need your help, Father. We need your strength that your spirit supplies. So please do a work in us as a community that we together would be a kingdom of priests. We ask in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.